The Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Hi, I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is the Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Ensemble Advice South Africa. Today I have the pleasure to have in person, um, over a drink, I have with me Dylan Verena. Dylan is the Head of Business Development for Wealthbit, which is a a piece of fintech software that we are currently experimenting with in our business. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to talk a little bit around Dylan's history in financial services, share with the listeners what he's working on currently, what it takes to build and run a fintech business, and maybe some of the uncommon questions financial advisors expect uh, these tools to to solve. Dylan, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Excited to to delve a little bit deeper. You had a a really long drive (laughs) all the way Uh, to the office. (laughs) So Dylan lives uh, down the road from our office, but you're not originally from Durbanville or from Cape Town. Give us a little bit of that, that backstory. Yeah, so I've had a, an interesting kind of history, and I guess we'll get into a little bit deeper how I got to this point in my life. But I, um, I was originally born in Cape Town, um, grew up in Pretoria, and moved back to Cape Town originally, and then spent five years in the UK. In my past life, I was actually a cricketer, um, so that was my job for five years. And came back to Cape Town and always stayed in the southern suburbs and then met my beautiful wife and she was a local Phil London girl and she convinced me to move to the dark side here in Durbanville. So this is now, yeah, where we call home. Wonderful, wonderful. I want to know a little bit more about that career as a sportsman and and the parallels to financial services. Like, are are there anything that surprised you when joining financial services that might have been like slightly similar to being a sportsman? Yeah, I think in with as in anything in life, you can kind of draw parallels from different aspects of your life. And the thing that I noticed off the bat was in sports, you're always doing things behind the scenes that no one sees so that you can get better at what you do. And when I joined the industry, I obviously had zero experience like anyone else who joins an industry. And it helped me understand, you know what, I need to put in the effort behind the scenes so that when I get onto the playing field on game day, I can show up. Um, and 
it's it's all about that graft behind the scenes and it yeah, that hard work is kind of what sport brings into everything. So for people listening to this episode, I'm sure most of them would be able to relate mm. around the elements that clients don't see. No, and it's that initial kind of foray into the financial service industry when any of us starts. It's, it's a difficult industry to crack, and it takes a lot of resilience. Any advisor that you meet that's been in the industry for more than five or ten years, they have a certain... Yeah, you know, a certain bit of resilience because they wouldn't have got there. They couldn't get through some tough times. Well, they might have not realized <laughs> there's easier ways to, to make a living, um, especially starting out, yeah. right? So tell me about that um, leaving school. How did you get from leaving high school to ending up in financial services? And, and what was that financial services green job? Was it working in the fintech side or did it start out differently? Yeah, so... My dream was always to be a professional cricketer. Um, I never considered any other line of work. And I fortunately, I say fortunately, had a big injury when I was in matric. And it took two years out of my sporting life. And it's the only reason I actually went and studied. Um, And I luckily got good enough marks at school. And I needed to now decide what I was going to go study at Stellenbosch. And at that point in my life, I never... I never had any financial role models in my life growing up. And it was something that I I made a decision very, very early on in life that I am not going to deal with money the same way that my family dealt with money. And I decided, okay, I'm going to go study. Why not actually use that as an opportunity to learn a little bit more about money? Um, so I studied a BCom at Stellenbosch, and... I'm happy that I completed it. And after I completed it, then I got a call from an agent and I went and played cricket. And then when I came back, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. Um, as most sportsmen at the end of their, that little career, when it's a not-so-successful career, you're kind of doubting where you stand in life. And I got called by a recruiter at a company that all they were looking for really was someone with British experience. Um, and we're not going to go into names. <laughs> we can take a guess, but we're not going to go down no, that road. We're not going to go down that road. Um, and it was. Please don't check out Dylan's LinkedIn profile. <laughs> it was basically a. Um, what I didn't realize at the time was it was a pure sales role. Um, and ended up working for them, and it was my first real job in the financial service industry. And that's kind of where the resilience came in. And very quickly, I say very quickly, um, I lasted about a year and a half at that company, which is an achievement in itself. Um, And very quickly realized, you know what, that's not the type of place that I want to stay in. And very quickly moved more into more of the advice side of things and being a proper financial advisor. Um, Went and studied my postgrad and yeah, ended up a couple of years later, with a few events happening in my life. So my dad passed away suddenly. And when things like that happen, we tend to think about where we are in life and what we really want to be doing with our lives. Um, And I realized I was making a difference to my book of clients. I was able to give them a great service, um, albeit a very frustrating experience because I would spend two hours putting a plan together, go see them, they then tell me something that they have that I didn't know before I went and put the plan together. I had to go back and forth, back and forth, 
but I made sure I was giving them a great service. And so my dad died and I was at this point where, you know what, am I making a big enough difference in the world? Um, and I wasn't. I was servicing my 120 clients and they were getting a great experience. But there's an opportunity because most advisors come from the same kind of school as myself where they get into a financial service company and they taught how to sell in the financial service industry. Um, so there was an opportunity to make a difference to more clients by helping advisors give better advice to a broad, broader kind of client base. And I met the guys at WealthBit and I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm joining you guys. I resigned on the spot and I said, I'm, I'm going to be part of the team and I'm going to make a difference in the advice space. And that's, that's where I am. Quite a few very mature decisions. And I want to know about that shift away from sales into advice where you, you said, hey, I'm going to stay in this industry where a lot of people say, I'm going to leave, I'm going to become a teacher, I'm going to do something else. The stats are saying to us almost 90% of people, if they've had a bad sales experience, they change careers completely. Whereas you went deeper. Talk me through that decision. Why not leave? It goes back to, I guess, the core reason why I decided to study something in the financial space. And it was, I didn't, I wanted to be clever with my money. And I understood how important proper advice could be to cut out clients. So stepping away from the more salesy role into a proper advice role was kind of doubling down and saying, you know what, this is the right industry. I need to make a difference, but I'm going to do that by getting even better and providing a better service and not just selling people stuff they don't need. So going to the root and saying, okay, am I in the right place? I'm, I'm on the right bus, maybe just not in the right seat. 100%. 100%. It was a conscious decision. <laughs> and then the shift to WealthBit, which sounds like a much faster decision. It's like, hey, this is something that's uh, resonating with me and I'm going to make the decision on the, on the spot. In hindsight, did you make that decision too quickly? I don't think so. I think it's, it's something that I've always had in my being is help more people. I will, do, I will take on any role that will help more people. Um, at the at the drop of ads, um, and it was an opportunity that doesn't come around every day, um, especially for a, someone that is a financial advisor moving slightly into the tech space. It's not a sort of an opportunity you get very often. I was very interested in the tech space. I explored all the tools that were out there at the time, and it was just a kind of a light bulb moment. You know what? I need to I need to help advisors help more people. There are more people like me out there that want to give great advice to their clients and I can help them. Wonderful. And I think the, the discussion around the FinTech piece, it always looks easy from the outside or when I say always, when we look at the tools out there, it's almost like looking at a really successful sportsman or really successful asset manager. We see the ones that are still around. So there's that survivorship bias and we don't necessarily see all of the hard work behind the scenes, just like as financial planners, our clients don't see that. So tell me a little bit about the hard work behind the scenes. What does it take? How long does it take to build a fintech business that is sustainable in South Africa? Around seven and a half years. <laughs> and that's where we are now. Um, so your first few years, and I think 
the the thing that people often see, and like you said, you see the the companies that succeed. You don't see all the mistakes that those companies make along the way. You don't see all of the companies that no longer exist. And where where the tough thing comes is is that survivorship and knowing you know what your version one of your tool. Not everyone's going to love it, but are you willing to again double down, double down, double down? in order to build something that you're proud of at the end of the day. Um, what often happens, especially in the fintech space, is people build a piece of a system and you get an insurer or you get a big asset manager come in and say, cool, we're going we're gonna to buy you out. And then you end up building something that you never envisioned from the start. So it's a... Yeah, it's, it's a journey that you need to be brave on and you need to stand your ground. So we haven't taken on any external funding within WealthBit. And at, at times it, it's tempting, but getting to that point where seven and a half years later, we're now okay by ourselves is, is a big thing. So it's got to, again, resilience, right? Stick to what you're doing, stick to your guns, maybe have pockets deep enough to sustain yourself in that initial period. It's a hard graft. It's an important thing that you mentioned there around external shareholding. But I do think sometimes we start tech businesses with a clear exit in mind, either you know, selling or generating a potential revenue or being utilized in another business. So within Wealthbit, what is that kind of long-term? Is it just gaining share in the market and, and delivering a great service? Yeah, so Wealthbit's main, so our BHAG, so our big, hairy, audacious goal is we want to help a billion people worldwide to better understand their financial situation and get to a better, better outcome. And that's that's basically it. Once we do that, then we can say we've achieved our goal. Um, it's never been the idea to exit or anything like that. We want to get to a point where both clients and advisors love using WealthBit. Um, and with the kind of asset managers data that we're putting in, it creates a nice little ecosystem and again, promotes that the, the right way, I think, of financial advice where the clients and the advisor have a collaborative kind of journey in building their financial plan, bringing the providers after that fact into the situation and saying, now that we've solved your issues or now that we have everything together, bringing them into the situation. Um, and that's kind of if you just all the down in a nutshell, it's helping advisors and clients to get on the same path. Do you see a space where this is direct to market, excluding the advisor? Or is, the, is there still a role for the advisor to play in a space where we could build a lot of the advisor's value add within a system? Yeah, so I, we've done a lot of research on this. And, you know, there's always in the, in the tech space, and it's got a little bit better, but there was always the, oh, the robots are coming to take over our jobs and kind of robo-advice is going to be the only thing in the industry. And... Honestly, we don't believe that robo-advice works. Um, we believe that it maybe works in, a, in small bits and pieces, but a human, it's human nature to want to sense-check any big financial decisions with a professional. So we're always going to create the ecosystem for that to happen. So let the tech do all the heavy lifting, all the administrative stuff that you shouldn't be doing anyway because it's not your core role, but use the tech to do that and then... Do what you do best. Go spend more time with your clients. And that's that's what we want. We want you to spend more time with your clients. We never want to take an advice out of the industry. So Dylan, if we're saying that this technology is built 
to make your back office run more efficient. You, you just said, like, free up more time. Don't spend it buried in paperwork. Like, what are the elements that you're seeing financial advisors or users of wealth that are saying, wow, I used to spend X amount of hours doing something and now I'm doing, you know, half X. And what, what are those things that, um, yeah, how are they creating efficiencies, I guess? Yeah, so I can give you one exact example. And we did a test this month on one of our FSPs and gathering information from service providers to put together a client's plan. We saved them this month 136 hours within their company of gathering data. And if you think about it, 136 hours is a lot of client meetings that you could be doing. So just one part of WealthBit, which is the data consolidation, already saves a massive amount of time for each advisor. I would argue that's at least one or two full-time staff members, right? Um, With the added accuracy, what are we seeing in terms of accuracy stats? Like, is it it better than humans doing this or... Is it just a function of where the data is coming from? Yeah, so um, as a whole, there are less mistakes than if a human has to type it into an Excel spreadsheet. And I always laugh when I say Excel because as advisors, that's where we all kind of went to eventually get everything put in an Excel spreadsheet with all our formulas and everything. But spreadsheets break, formulas break. If you have too many people going in and changing things, it breaks. And now what happens is when we take on a, a client, or a new FSP, we do the first time we get their data from the various service providers, we'll do a data check and we'll say, we'll run through everything with um, a couple of advisors or some of the ops people in the company and see, let's sense check everything. Let's check if there's any mistakes. And if there are slight errors, you catch it then. But once it's done, it's done. And then going forward, it's a, it's a smooth process. So what type of errors would that be? It's, it's normally an error... Where so not all asset or not all providers are built equal, um, and the errors normally creep in where they have given for some reason this new data set in cents and not in rands. Okay. So there's an extra two zeros on the end of everything. Um, or we had we took on a new service provider a couple of months ago, and we very quickly realised when they gave us the holding data within assets. Um, each underlying fund had the value for the entire asset. So if you have four underlying funds, your asset was four times more. Um, so it's little things like that that happen along the way. And there's no standardized process in the industry, which I think I would love us to get to. Um, so advisors, I mean, advisor, advisors, providers are almost on this journey with us and making their value prop a little bit better by reporting better, which is powerful. So Dylan, when you say no standardized set, is that would that be like how asset managers are delivering data to financial advisor practices? Like what is the what is the method? Because we hear about these ACISA standards, we hear about standards of reporting. Like what would it have to take for there to be a standard of data exchange between platforms and advisor practices? No, it's an it's an interesting question. And I think if we if we look it's always better to understand the root of why something is the way that it is. And if we look back at the industry, and it's getting better, don't get me wrong, but providers were gatekeepers of information. And what they wanted to do was keep their data close to their chest because they wanted to keep your clients with them. So we all know of providers when you want, when you took on a new client and maybe you wanted to do a Section 14 transfer, 
the provider would directly mail the client with a, this is what you're giving up by moving. Um, I want to stop you there. The best I've heard is that the trustees asked me to give you a call. Yeah. <laughs> the trustees of the insert fund <laughs> name, yeah. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's the, the root of the problem has been, and you see it more with um, kind of the older insurers, and they're getting better. They're getting mm-hmm. a lot better. I always want to give credit where credit's due. Yeah. Um, they are coming to the party now and we're getting more and more of them who are actually willing to work with us to make their data reporting process a lot better. Um, and it's it's good to see. Um, I Part of my goal is change the face of the industry. If you see me on LinkedIn, you'll see I say changing the financial service industry. And I believe that's one of them. Getting data reported in a standard format. Eventually, maybe not in my lifetime, but that is the end goal to make things easier. Where would that sit? Would it sit with the CISO? Would it sit with governing bodies? Would it sit with a group of practices, the FIA, the FBI? Like, if someone's listening to this, please reach out and, and help us. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know is the honest answer. Um, I think there are various standards from a CISA and those sorts of things, but they don't necessarily talk to how that reporting is done to end-user clients. It's just that you have to have a report, you have to have these details in, not it has to be in this format. One thing I'd love also, and we might be digressing here, is all fact sheets should be standardized. I think all fact sheets should look the same, have the same layout, have the same details on it. Because if you try and show a client, now you're showing them various options. Each fact sheet you show them looks different. How do you compare that leads us to another challenge around within the technology. Like if you're plugging in funds and you're plugging in asset allocations, like you need to get that data somewhere because that's not included in the data from these platforms. So like where does Wealthbit get the enhanced information on total expense ratios and asset allocation data? Is there reliable data out there that's accurate and updated? There, there is. Um, and Providers are getting better at actually being able to share that data with us directly, which is good. Um, and But there are sources. I mean, we all know the, the various tools that you can use that you can get asset allocation data on everything. Um, and that's, I think, a key point with tech, right? There are, there's always three, five different ways to skin a cat. And normally it's a com- combination of all of them that creates an end product. So... Obviously, first prize is getting that asset allocation data from a provider. But if it does Provider, you mean asset manager? Asset manager, okay. yeah. So coming directly from them. But if we don't have that, there needs to be a way to get that for mm-hmm. our advisors mm-hmm. using the system. Because that's what tech needs to do. It needs to provide you with the efficiencies. So we need to make, find a way to make it work. And luckily, there are, there are places where you can get the asset allocation. And it is probably... High 90s percent of the time accurate, that's allocation data, okay. which is good. That's helpful, as opposed to just saying, oh, 60% is undisclosed. And exactly. Mr. Client, we don't know where your funds are. It's invested somewhere and just can't tell you. Exactly. So now your data is coming into the system. You have a sense of reliability and accuracy. How does Wealthbit make sure that someone else is not seeing my client data? Like, What are the things behind the scenes that you can maybe share with us around data segregation and, and keeping those walls between practices. Yeah, so first, firstly, I always make a joke that I don't even get to see your data. <laughs> so it's, it's always important for any 
any tech company that consumes data to have very, very strict data security policies. Um, our data security policy is on, on our website if you want to go check it out. But it's um, it's really intense in a, in a sense of there's, even within data teams, there are only certain people that can see certain things. So you effectively never get the entire picture. If you see a bit of data, you're seeing that bit of data and you can't piece it together. This data goes with that data, goes with that data, which if you put all them together, now I can work out that is Louise Client X that has this, this, this. Um, so it's about segmenting the responsibilities within the team and making sure that all those responsibilities work together but independently of each other. Okay, like that. So kind of anonymizing the data that you work with a relevant piece, but it's not, I can't give you information that you don't necessarily need. So now we have secure data and we have regular data that's, that's in the system. Like what does it then do with that data? Like how does it plug into the financial predictions? Or walk me through when an advisor logs into wealth, but what's the most common thing that they do? The most common thing that they do firstly is go, okay, well, now I understand <laughs> how everything fits together. But what what generally happens is, and again, it's, it comes down to that efficiency and what we spoke about earlier about taking, doing the things that take time for you that you mm. then you don't have to do it. So advisors will go in and say, okay, I'm reviewing client X tomorrow. Click on client X profile in Wealth, but it's called their dashboard. Their dashboard opens, all the data is pulled in, the data is accurate, and you can actually go right now to have a review meeting with the clients. So they're using the system to you know, play a couple of games of golf extra a week. But it's it's for those advisors who five minutes before a review meeting remember that they have that review meeting and they're able to log in and go, okay, cool, actually we've got an updated plan for this client and we've got something to work with. Um, and then the idea and the whole... I think where Wildbit's key differentiator is is the interaction that the advisor has with the client in that meeting using the system. So it's not we're going to generate your plan and then come and see you. It's let's log in together. Your plan's updated, but now let's go through that process and look at some of the adjustments we can make. And it's a consultative experience between the advisor and the client rather than the old school, I'm telling you to do this because I'm going to get 3% upfront comp. This week, there's an article on kitsis.com about the rise of collaborative planning and the demise of the written financial plan. I love that. And we're seeing that in our business, right? Someone's saying, oh, what would happen if I do this? And the challenge we have is that when someone phones in and we are caught unprepared for that scenario, right? Oh, just tell me, like, what, do I, what happens to my plan if this happens? Ah, oh, sorry, give us a bit of time to update your plan and we'll, we'll let you know tomorrow or two days. It's... Uh, it's almost like the suicide hotline that says, don't phone now, phone back tomorrow. Like it's, it's not as valuable when you need it now. So I, I look at it in this way, and it's, it's an interesting kind of way to think about it. And I think it was Kate Zabriskie who had a quote, your customer's perception is your reality. So they're, in the past, they used to compare financial advisors with financial advisors. Now... Any of your clients, they want to order their groceries, what do they do? They go on their phone, order from Woolies or Checkers. Within 60 minutes, their groceries arrive. That's a great customer service. I want a new kettle. I go on to one of the um, e-commerce stores, buy my 
purchase a kettle and arrives at my door, great service. They're expecting that from financial advisors, right? So if they call you and you tell them, give me two days to get back to you, for them now they're saying, oh, maybe, maybe I can get better service out there. And that's where kind of the technology and having them involved is, is key. I don't know if you've ever experienced same-day delivery with Takelot, but once you have that, you're like, waiting two days don't seem that acceptable. You're like, ah, oh, where's, the, where's the deliver now exactly. option? Do we need to charge based on urgency? Do you think we should have pricing mechanisms that would allow clients to say, hey, if I need advice now, I want to have access to it versus, oh, you pay a little bit less, but you wait a little bit longer? I, so I, I think there is an opportunity for it. I, I would say think about your practice and how you want your practice to come across. Um, it's all good and well saying, okay, I'm, giving, I'm going to give you a priority service. But then you're going to have clients that maybe didn't know about your priority service because you didn't tell them about it, and you're not giving everyone a consistent service. And that's key, consistent advice across your practice and a consistent service. Because your client that doesn't pay for priority advice is as much an advocate or a detractor in the market than your client that does. You've got to keep both of them happy. How does that tie into advisor trust? Because we keep on hearing about delivering on the expectation. Mm. And what I'm hearing you say is don't manage the expectation. Rather actually deliver on what people are already expecting. Yeah. So advisor trust, it's, it's a big thing. And I... So honestly, it's one of the reasons I love Wellbit. It's because it's laid out there for the client to see. Um, you've had a little bit of an experience now with the system, but you effectively giving your clients a login to their own dashboard that they can log into 24 hours a day. So they can they can see that by them, by you giving them that access, that's already building trust to them. You're building that plan with them. They're seeing the consequence of each decision along the way. And you're helping them understand why they're doing something. And understanding is a big part of trust. So if I tell you, do this, just trust me, just do this, but you don't know why you're doing that, you're not going to trust me. <laughs> so true, so true. We've had a few conversations this week with clients where they say, oh, but you've told me that I'm okay. And our approach now is to say, yes, we might have said that in the past, but now I want to show you. Mm. I want to show you so that you can either agree or disagree that you will be okay or that we have some options um, for this to work out. I want to know, Betterment used to have the stat where they would report on the, on the amount of client logins and they would ping an advisor to say, hey, your client just logged in 10 times in the last day. Mm. Um, is this some kind of stats that you have around the frequency of client logins and maybe kind of what behavior that drives? So I don't offhand have those stats. What I can tell you within Wealthbit, um, and remember we're still a fairly young company, we see about just over 8,000 single events happening on a daily basis within the system, which is already, I mean, that's, that's pretty insane that advisors are, are using the system so much and the amount of end-user clients that are now logging in. Initially, it was advisors logging in, and now it's actually more clients that are logging in than advisors on a daily basis. But that's because there are more clients, obviously, in the system than advisors. 
How many advisors are using Wealthbit actively? Like, what is your active user? So it's just over 170. Okay. Okay. So you're now starting to see trends. You're starting to see what people are requesting. What is the most asked for feature that you think is completely should not be asked for? That should, that should be banned. That should be like, please don't ask us to build this again. Uh, honestly, IRR. <laughs> and the reason, I don't necessarily think IRR is a bad thing. The reason it's very difficult to build into any tool is it's very dangerous to say you built an IRR calculation into a system and you miss a certain data point. Um, it's a very dangerous situation. I've seen a couple of companies try and give IRR calculations, and they are more than 90% wrong all of the time because there's one little um, deposit missed along the way. There's one little kind of withdrawal missed along the way. And giving clients inaccurate information is worse than giving them no information. I like that. I like that. Giving them inaccurate information is worse. Because what, what do they do with that information? Now you know your IRR. What's a better way of looking at the success of someone's finances? Because I think as a profession, we're fixated on returns. And, and maybe some of that is client-driven. And yes, I'm not saying avoid looking at returns. But like you just said, like if that data is incorrect, but also what, like what are you doing with it? Um, what's, a, what's a better way of determining client success? So I, I want to take a little step back and ask you a question on that. Why do we focus on returns? Or why have we focused on returns historically? It's probably a function of what the media is portraying and having something to compare or potentially even defend your advice. And with advice, I say your investment selection more so than advice. And it's possibly because I'm trying to win a client, so I'm telling you I'm going to earn you 2% more than your current advisor. Absolutely. It's a vanity metric. Exactly, and that's a dangerous slope, right? Mm. So coming back to what is success for a client, it's, is the plan that we put together, is that going to get me to my outcome? And that is not based on, am I going to get high enough returns? Getting to the correct outcome is lifestyle decisions along the way. It's the financial coaching. I know you're a big advocate of coaching clients and having that, almost those financial literacy conversations with your clients um, and the things that they do on a daily basis is other things that kill their portfolio. Not earning half a percent less this year. And success is how can you help your clients stay on that right track? So how do you help manage their lifestyle or their thinking around money that they don't make the silly mistakes that maybe historically clients used to make? And that for me is the biggest thing. Am I on track? Am I making the right decisions every day to stay on track? And am I enabling my clients to see those decisions? And I'm guessing Wealthbit allows us to have a, a meaningful conversation around how on track am I? Is it possible to report yet on progress towards goal relative to where we were, let's say it's an annual review, relative to where we were last year this time? Because for a lot of our clients, like, well, okay, last year I was 90% on track, now I'm 92%. Great, that's a success, right? Or I'm 88%. Oh, hold on, like we're moving in the wrong direction. Yeah, so we're, we're actually busy looking at how to build an exact kind of thing like that. But what it does, the system does do is 
at the top, you've got a safe status and the client is either highly unlikely or unlikely or possibly likely or highly likely. And on an annual basis, depending on the decisions that they're making and maybe extra contributions they're putting in, maybe a few less cash flow events that they're spending money on along the way, they can very quickly see I've gone from possibly being able to succeed to likely being able to succeed. And it's a big slider at the top of the thing, front and center. It helps your client know, am I on track? Am I not on track? Dylan, this is the probability of success calculation where it would look at how many events actually turn out successful compared to how many fail? So it effectively looks at um, what capital do I have, what decisions am I making along the way, where am I spending money along the way, and at retirement, what happens is it takes that into consideration and works out my income that I need for the rest of my life, what portion of that can I get from my uh, portfolio. So if I can get... 120% of what I want, I'm obviously highly likely to succeed. If I can get only 10% of what I need, then I'm highly unlikely to succeed. Okay, so it's a a linear progression and saying, great, based on this, is there a buffer or is there not? Talk me through like the the mathematics behind wealth, but who's checking that? How do we know the figures that we're seeing (laughs) is actually correct? And the reason why I ask that is that sometimes we come across CRM systems where actually the financial planning tools are just someone plugged in the wrong estate duty numbers yeah. or uh, there's so much of that going on. So like what certainty do we have that those numbers are actually correct? So first prize always sense check it yourself um, and make sure that it comes to the, the same roundabout answer that you get. Um, no two systems will ever give you exactly the same answer, but that it gets to what you were expecting. But secondly, Product providers do a lot of due diligence on us. Um, you can imagine getting data from a product provider. It's, it's a process to get them to agree to give you data. So there are actuaries from various product providers that have actually checked the calculations in the back end. And not going to say who, but one of the big um, insurers wanted to use some of our calculations. And we said no, obviously. But it's, it's that accurate. Um, and the guys are, we pride ourselves on our calculation metrics, basically. Wonderful. So find your actuarial friend, like get them to run the numbers um, and check it. But I think it's important because as a profession, we're moving away from the technical piece. Yet what I'm seeing is that a lot of people are now discounting it. Yeah. Almost saying, hey, we can get away without doing that. I think that's a risk. It, it is a big risk. And one of the one of the things that we always hear when a new advisor looks at WealthBit, and maybe they're a skeptical advisor because – some people are skeptical of can technology do these type, sorts of things. And WealthBit is by design simple. Um, it's simple UI, simple kind of visual of everything. But they don't understand that in the back end, there is extreme complexity going on. Um, so just because you see something on face value that looks pretty easy to understand doesn't always mean that the simplistic calculations going on. So, I mean, we've got things like fiscal drag even built into the system, which is very difficult to do on your own calculations. I'm, I'm really excited about this because I think the future where we use technology efficiently, we're already seeing that, right? So the financial planning standards boards um, last week, I, I put out an episode on the podcast around the skills that we need as financial planners. And the second last thing that they mentioned is you have to be tech savvy. Yeah. Right. So this is not a requirement. Yeah. It's no longer optional. It's no longer outsourcing it to someone in your business. So what I want to know is for financial planners that are upping their tech 
skills that are getting their practice ready to incorporate technology. What are the things that you think they should be spending time on to make the implementation easier in their business? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's one of my do's and don'ts that I always say to people. So don't expect the technology to be a silver bullet. It's not something that I can click a button and boom, now I've got this amazing technology in my practice and it's going to run everything perfectly right off the bat. The biggest thing that I can advise any advisor is once you implement a piece of technology, firstly, don't implement something that thinks or that you think can do a bit of everything. Use very specialized pieces of technology in different parts of your business, but actually spend a little bit of time up front. We're in a game of telling our clients that they need to invest some money, right? So we need to invest some time into learning about that new system, how it's going to fit in with your methodology within your business, because every business is different. If you want to plug and play and think that the way it's going to work for you guys is the same as your competitor next door, it's not going to work. So figure out how that tech works, spend some time getting to know it, and figure out how to implement it with each step or each stage of your process in your business, and then you find success. I like what you said about the specialist tools because the number one thing I hear is which tool will do everything for me? Like where's the holy grail? <laughs> is, is it not? Because when I look at the marketing and, and the packaging around wealth, but it seems like it could do a lot. It could consolidate a lot of the tools, yet what I'm hearing you say is, hey, we need the specialist tool. Mm. And that specifically comes around being a CRM and being a financial planning tool um, and being a... I don't know, a MailChimp, for instance. Mm -hmm. If you try and do various kind of core functions, that's an issue. So Wealthbit is pure kind of financial planning tool that is used for um, engagement with your clients. Yes, there are different parts of the financial planning process that it can do, but we're never going to try and build a CRM because then we kind of dilute our value because we're spending time on that. And we're going to end up being a system that's okay in each portion. We'll rather stick to what we're good at. We're going to blow your socks off with this planning tool and we're going to concentrate on that. I must say that was one of the steps where as part of this onboarding, we have to export data from our CRM. And I'm so thankful that we're on Wealthbox because it was two clicks. <laughs> yeah. It was export, select our clients. There's my CSV file with all of my client CRM data. And I can't imagine that happening. Like, How easy is it to get data out of the average CRM that the average advisor is using in South Africa? Like. So it depends on which CRM. And, I mean, Newsflash, some of them actually charge you to pull your own data, which is crazy. I have to put down this drink. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, yeah, in a world where there's APIs and there's data that you can get freely, um, it should not be allowed. <laughs> so if, if everyone wants, anyone is in a like in a contract with that CRM, please uh, revisit um, the rationale be, behind that CRM. They charge you for support requests. They'll charge you for any additional training that you might need within the system. And it's so we don't believe that that should happen. We believe onboarding, training, everything should be just part and parcel of what we deliver. 
it's back to aligning those expectations yeah. and saying, hey, this is a, an expectation of a modern consumer. Yes, they happen to be financial advisors or they happen to be clients of financial advisors. And we would want to deliver a service that's on par with anything else they, they can expect. 100%. And if, I mean, even if they do it for the selfish reason, the better we onboard you, the better we train you, the longer you'll stay with us. So even look at it from that view. If you want to make client or advisor stay with you, give them a a really great onboarding experience and training experience. Don't charge them for it. Dylan, as we come to the end of this conversation, is there anything you want to share with the listeners um, about your experience with onboarding and and new advisors and the expectations around the software uh, that you haven't touched on today? No, I think for for everyone, I'd encourage you to have a look at us first of all. Um, and uh, what Louis and them would have seen is we actually believe that you should try the system before you pay. So we actually give a two month free trial to any new client that wants to have a look at us. And what that is designed to do is us to help you see will wealth but actually work within your business. So I'm. A firm believer because I was an advisor and I know what it's like using a tool that doesn't fit with my business. Um, I'm a firm believer in trying it out, trying to see whether it is the right tool for your business. And once you make that decision, then um, you know that it's it's the right thing for you. So don't just jump into something. Try it out. Give it the two months and put in a little bit of effort along the way. Um, we obviously help as much as we can, and our onboarding team is brilliant. But yeah. Try it, try it out in your business, and once you decide it's good or it's not good for you, then that's the way I think you should look at any piece of technology. Don't just say, someone, Louis recommended this tool, I'm going to buy it and put it in my practice. Actually do your research on everything, um, and that I think is the biggest kind of takeaway for everyone. Find the system that works for you. Don't try and kind of panel build systems to make it fit into your kind of ecosystem that one. I want to add that having a champion within your business to drive that, yeah. someone responsible, not the person making the decisions, yeah. but this, the person that's probably going to use it yeah. and implement it, um, that has helped us mm-hmm. in to make that decision. And like you said, Dylan, um, these systems are like having your favorite beer. Yeah. Right? I can tell you my favorite beer, but it's not going to be the same for the next person. So 100%. it's not part of your role to figure out which tech uh, <laughs> pieces uh, will work for your business. And it's, it's okay if it's not wealth, but um, you don't have a lot of other options out there. But, uh, you know, there's, um, hopefully there will be an evolution of this fintech market within South Africa so that we can actually like, use these tools and focus on delivering better quality advice for our clients. And that's what it comes down to. It's that end user client that we want to give the best quality of advice to. Dylan, for people wanting to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way to track you down? Oof, there's a couple of ways. So you can follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm sure Louis will put my surname somewhere because it's impossible to remember how to spell it. Um, but otherwise, if you go to wallbit.co, so no M, so just .co, You'll um, have a look at our website. You can even book a, a demo directly into my diary. My diary is actually on our website, so you can book some time and catch up with me. Um, or fire me an email at dylan at wealthbook.co. Um, really, really easy. Thank you so much for your time, and I wish you all the best. Thanks, Louis. Really, really good talking to you.